Barbara is going to come and give us our reading. The reading this morning is taken from Mark chapter 20, sorry, chapter 5, verse 21 to the end. And it can be found on page 1007 in the Church Bibles. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered round him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some of the men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher any more? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. 
loving, eternal God, the father of Eve and the mother of Adam. We invite you to encourage us, inspire us and challenge us this morning by your Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ. Amen. Well, it's a joy to be here this morning um, preaching at this service and it's a joy that it is such a small congregation this morning because this weekend is a, a weekend of joy and it is a weekend for the girls. As we gather here this morning, our dear sister um, Helen Mitchell is being ordained deacon in Guildford Cathedral and it was a joy to go to the cathedral yesterday and to be present for the um, priesting, the ordination of the Reverend Debs Wignall to priest in the Church of England. It was a joy to be there yesterday. It's also a, a momentous occasion for the Methodist Church this weekend, because yesterday, for the very first time in history, the presidency of the Methodist Church in the UK was handed from one woman to another woman. And uh, as a Methodist, I might say something about, well, what does that say about apostolic succession? But I won't go there this morning. But one thing I didn't notice yesterday at the cathedral was this. The ordination was led by Bishop Joe. And her boss, Bishop Andrew, served as deacon in that service and allowed Joe to act as bishop. And it, it was a wonderful, symbolic moment. And it is a joy to see the way that the Church of England and the Methodist Church are embracing women in equality in ministry within the life of the church. But imagine a world where everything is stacked against you from the very beginning of, of your life simply because you were not born a boy. A world where you don't have equal access to education. A world where there are a set of rules and laws which apply to you which don't apply to your brother. Imagine a society where your life is constantly constrained by a much narrower range of opportunities and expectations than your male counterparts. A society where the men hold all the power and you put your life at risk if you even question their assumptions. Imagine a community where you won't be able to own property or land where you won't be able to vote, where you won't be able to divorce your husband, but he will be able to divorce you for any reason he wants. Worst of all, imagine a God who says you are lower than all the sons of Adam in any and every spiritual hierarchy. And imagine a religion which declares you are unclean every month when your body simply does exactly what the loving creator created it to do. 
Where on earth does such a world, such a society, such a community, such a religion exist? Well, this was the reality for many of the women in Jesus' day. But sadly, it's still the reality for millions and millions of women here on planet Earth today. And into such a world steps Jesus. God incarnate, God in human form. That's what we believe as Christians, that Jesus steps into that world. And in the story we've heard from Mark's gospel this morning, he, he literally stepped out of a boat into that world, as he did on many occasions in Mark's gospel. Crosses the Sea of Galilee and he literally steps out of the boat into that world. And part of his ministry, as he does that, is to set women, girls, free from those things and restore them to their true identity as God's daughters. So on this occasion, he steps out of the boat, onto the shore, in front of a great crowd of local people. These were not people who had come from different countries or different societies or different cities. These were his local people. He steps out of the boat onto the shore in front of a large crowd of local people. And on this occasion, his ministry to the girls doesn't start with the women. His ministry to the girls starts with just one man. But a very particular sort of man. First of all, it's a broken-hearted father. Secondly, it's Jairus. A man of reputation known throughout all of Galilee. A leader of the synagogue. In other words, a local man who's at the very top of the local religious hierarchy. A bit like Bishop Andrew. At the top of the hierarchy. He's respected by everybody and he's listened to by everybody. He has influence. He's a man of power and he's regarded as holy, pious and dignified. And what does he do in this story? Well, Mark gives us a very clear description, as Mark often does. Mark tells us that this man from the top of the hierarchy throws himself down in the dirt before Jesus' feet, and he begs repeatedly. He grovels. And in that one action, 
a revolution for the women in the local community begins. You see, this revolution on this occasion didn't start with a suffragette-style protest march. It starts with just that one religious leader publicly begging Jesus to help his daughter. For Jairus, this was, was not some political, theological or scriptural debate about the place of women in society. This was much more personal. This is, was about the one little girl he loved more than any other. His 12-year-old dying daughter at home. I believe Jairus gives us two principles here on how, as Christians, to radically change things for the better for 50% of the world's population. First principle, be prepared to get down in the dirt and beg God for it repeatedly. We have a fancy word for that in the church, don't we? We call it intercession. But this is really the heart of what we mean by intercession. It's about getting down before God and begging God to change things. And if he doesn't change it quickly, keep doing it. Do it repeatedly. The second principle Jairus offers us is this. It's to see the women and the girls who suffer in our world today as daughters, as God's daughters. Just as Jairus saw his own daughter suffering, just as God saw his own daughter suffering. It's about making it personal. And I think if we could do those two things, our perspective, our prayers, and our actions would change. And we would begin to discover the true depth of God's love and compassion for girls and women suffering in our world today. Oh, and um, by the way, a little factual piece of something here. The name Jairus in Hebrew means to shine or enlighten. That's interesting, isn't it? That we this character is named to shine or enlighten. And the good news in this story is that Jairus' love and compassion for his daughter, his expectant faith in Jesus, and his humility in getting down before Jesus in the dirt literally, literally lit up the way for things to change. And not just for his daughter. Somehow it also changed the life of another woman who is hiding anonymously in the midst of the crowd. See, the temptation with this particular story is, is to divide it into two stories. But I think Mark puts it together like this because it's supposed to be one story. You know, the, the woman in the crowd is not just uh, something we, we pass on to and then come back to the main story. It's all one story. She witnesses Jairus' action. And life begins to change for her too. 
She was an, an, an anonymous woman filled with great shame. A woman with a serious gynecological condition, a bleeding which had left her richly unclean for as many years as Jairus' daughter had been alive. And somehow watching Jairus beg and probably having heard other local stories about this man Jesus, she received the tiniest glimmer of hope for herself. And she thought to herself, if I could even just touch his clothes, I could be healed. And that's exactly what she did. And that's exactly what happened immediately. But what was even more important is Jesus actually noticed her. He called her to himself. And there publicly in front of the great crowd of local people, he gives her the most extraordinary blessing, a trembling, shame-filled, anonymous Jewish woman could ever want to hear. Daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Well, I could actually just end the story and end my sermon right there, couldn't I? Just walk away and just leave that hanging in the air. Great ending to a sermon, that one. But there's still someone else who needs Jesus' help. The 12-year-old girl, very sick at home. Her healing is a much more private encounter. Just mum and dad are invited in with Jesus and three of his disciples. And by her bedside, Jesus takes her by the hand and says, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And immediately she too is restored to health and life. I wonder how you would depict all of this if you were offered the opportunity to produce a film based on Mark's gospel at this point. How would you draw out the drama of the kingdom of God breaking through into our human experience through Jesus' ministry? How would you write the script? How would you direct the action, particularly here? How would you challenge the audience watching the film, the crowd, to fully engage with the unfolding of God's eternal plans for women and men alike? Would you be tempted just to use a little bit of poetic license? Well, I would. You see, there is one thing I would do that I would write into the script and direct into the action, which actually fits extremely well with Mark's one narrative. 
It could even be an inference we're supposed to make in this story. And I'll tell you why. In the Gospels, it is extremely, extremely rare for the age of somebody to be revealed in the characters in the Gospels. It's extremely rare for the age of somebody in the Gospels to be revealed. It's even more rare to be told how long somebody has been sick for in actual years. Both those things are extremely rare. So this is my suggestion. I would make the anonymous woman in the crowd Jairus' wife. A wife who suffered during childbirth 12 years ago and has been hemorrhaging ever since. And I sort of get a feeling of what that um, looks like having been present at my first daughter's birth and the blood transfusion my wife had to have. You know, that's a messy business. And this hemorrhaging, which has been with her ever since, has kept her unclean and outcast from her people, her society, her community, and even her family as the wife of the leader of the synagogue. And despite all the wealth she has spent looking for a cure, none has ever been found until now. And the cure for her and for her beloved daughter who she's been separated from was found in the hands and the blessing of just one man. The one man whose parents named Yeshua, Jesus. Which means, you can help me out at this point, what does the name Jesus actually mean? It actually simply means God saves. I think if there's anything to take away from all this this morning, it's simply this. Jesus here, as he does in the rest of the gospel, Jesus here shows us that God's salvation is so much more than simply getting our sins forgiven so we can get a ticket to heaven. So much more than that. God's salvation is all about restoration. The restoration of God's children to their full dignity and worth as daughters and sons of Eve and Adam. Yes, in heaven, but also here and now through Jesus' ministry. The restoration of physical, emotional and social health. The restoration of families, communities, societies and even the world. The restoration of a relationship with God based on faith and God's touch through Christ and the Holy Spirit 
but also based on down in the dirt begging love, based on these things, rather than ridiculous man-made rules and regulations about religious obligation and custom. Actually, it's just simply an answer to a prayer we pray together in church every Sunday. In church, every Sunday, we just pray together, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know about you, but I can't imagine that things will ever be stacked against anyone in heaven just because of their gender. Simply because they were not born a boy or born a girl. So let me just leave you with one thought about challenge here. And it's simply this question. Out of all the characters in this story, who are you this morning? Or who is God calling you to be this morning? Are you Jairus? called to intercede for someone for a group has God put a compassion on your heart to beg God to help someone are you the anonymous woman the anonymous man even hiding in the crowd carrying shame that you don't know what to do with You feel that you've been sort of disattached from your family, from your friends, from society, even from the world. Do you feel unclean? Are you the little girl? You know, you've not done anything wrong, you're just sick. And you feel as if you're dying. Or are you the typically ambivalent local member of the crowd who's still sitting on the fence trying to figure this Jesus guy out. Well, whoever you are this morning, know that God knows you, know that God loves you, and his love's not dependent on your religious behaviour. His love for you is simply based in the fact that you're one of his children. Amen.